have been sacrificing our education to protest against your inaction. Ask the EU to stop caging animals. To reconcile the economy with our planet. Set a timeline for fossil fuel phase-out. To master the challenges of the digital age. None of the European nations will be part of the GA. It is about where we want to go and who we want to be. Hello there, welcome to Citizen Central, a podcast series all about the first transnational democracy instrument in the world, the European Citizens Initiative. Brought about back in the Lisbon Treaty, the ECI gives people the chance to pitch their own EU policies to the European Commission by gathering one million signatures from seven EU states. My name is Maeve McMahon, I'm an Irish reporter in Brussels, and on Citizen Central, I'll be finding out what exactly the ECI is, how you can launch or support one, and what drives people to give up their time and energy for a cause they care deeply about. In this chapter of Citizen Central, we meet Italian Silvia Pastorelli, who through Greenpeace is campaigning to ban fossil fuel advertising and sponsorship in the EU. Then we'll head back to Brussels and meet Antoine Thill, who with his ECI, the European EcoScore, wants the European Commission to establish a labelling system for all products consumed in Europe so that we, the consumers, know the very environmental impact of every product we consume. Welcome to Citizen Central. Now, fossil fuels are one of our main energy sources. Their presence in our society and economy is huge. And that's exactly what our first ECI wants to tackle. Sylvia. Thank you so much for being with us. And please first tell us a bit more about yourself. My name is Silvia Pastorelli. I'm a climate energy campaigner at Greenpeace. I'm working a lot on fossil fuels at the moment, following gas specifically. Okay, so tell us about your European Citizen Initiative, your ECI. So we've seen that the fossil fuel industry has been using the same tactics as um, the tobacco industry, from outright denying that climate change is a problem, presenting it under a different light, presenting skewed information, different data sets that will lead to believe that we don't need the measures that we actually need to keep the uh, temperature increase to uh, only 1.5 and in the end basically just uh, delaying climate action and we do have a ban on tobacco in place. And so the parallel here is very clear. I don't think we have ever had as much awareness about the state of health of our planet. So the ban that we're proposing at the European level will cover advertisement and sponsorship by fossil fuel companies. If we know what is causing this poor state of health of our planet, why would we want to keep promoting the products causing this problem? Do you think these bans will also ignite a change in lifestyle patterns like they did, in fact, with tobacco? I think that they have the potential to do that. One of the things that we really hope with this initiative is to create a conversation, in particular also around the place that advertisement has in our lives and in our public space. This advertisement is in front of us with something that is so present, it will in the end create a conversation, I believe, around our choices. And have you found that working already on this ECI, that you've already started a conversation with people who perhaps wouldn't have engaged in this kind of a conversation before? For some people, this might appear very new, um, maybe even somewhat uh, extreme to a certain extent, but 
it's a very concrete ask. People can can picture it. They can understand very clearly what their signature would mean and what would be the impact of that signature and of uh, such a piece of legislation. The conversation is not yet a mainstream conversation. We see that these conversations are starting to happen on national level in different places. One of the benefits of having this uh, European-wide initiative is to move this conversation from the fringes or from just you know, certain national context to the center of the environmental movement. And potentially this could become a catalyzing moment for the movement. An initiative with this particular demand has the potential to create change that is really systemic in every country at the same time. I think this is one of the benefits of ECIs in general. You have the potential to create, to make this change happen from the ground up. I think a lot of people understand how necessary this is and also how proportionate it is to the urgency of the climate crisis. But Sylvia, sponsorship is just such a big deal. It's in sport, culture, media, education. It's everywhere. We know that many fossil fuel companies are also sponsoring scientific, educational institutions, cultural institutions, cultural events. We know why they're doing this, of course. Two main things that happen, they perpetuate the idea that they are part of the solution, that they hold the keys to the solution as as, a, as an industry, but also they legitimize their presence by continuing to be seen as part of the debate and to be seen as part of our lives. And this is all about um, increasing the social license. But Sylvia, who do you think could fill or should fill the gap, this economic gap, if your ECI is a success? Probably people were asking the same question when the tobacco ban entered into force and they were wondering what is going to happen. Is this going to be a big gap that's never going to be filled again? Turns out, I don't see this big gap. Others uh, have a filled gap. An ECI with this demand is also an opportunity for people in general to rethink maybe the role of advertisement, people's lifestyles and choices, and what do we want to prioritize in, in our lives. Now, greenwashing is the big word of our time. One of the most striking things about advertisement from, from fossil fuel companies nowadays is, is they basically do not seem like advertising any fossil fuel at all, almost. Sun is shining, people cycling, kids running, and this is the kind of image they're, they're proposing. But at the end of the day, the core of their business where the bulk of their investments uh, lie is still extraction, production of fossil fuels. They show you one picture. That picture represents maybe renewable energies, a tiny, tiny fraction of what they're actually doing. So it's a very misleading picture. And Sylvia, if you all get these one million signatures and get to create this law, how do you think the conversation will be with industry? I'm not expecting this to be easy, obviously. I think it's going to be uh, a very, very interesting conversation. I can already pick certain countries being uh, maybe more opposed than others, especially when it's uh, fossil fuel companies that are partly state-owned. They have uh, an additional level of, of interest in, uh, in the sponsors and the advertisement uh, uh, because it's linked a lot to, to the state itself. These conversations also at the EU level can really be an exciting moment for activists and campaign organizations across Europe. People can get behind such a demand and, and really put a lot of pressures on these countries. I can imagine some of our listeners might be getting scared they're going to have to give up their car or their heating system. <laughs> this is not a ban on the product themselves. This is a ban on their advertisement. The core of their advertisement does not match the core of their business. Same as, as with tobacco, for, for most people, now we would think as unthinkable of um, smoking inside a restaurant. 
smoking on an yeah. airplane. That's the same. Like, how could, how were we living like that? How could we live like that? Mm. And also, I cannot imagine people thinking, oh, I would like to have that back. Petrol stations are already a thing of the past. Sylvia, thank you so much. Best of luck. It's a really interesting ECI. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me and for the opportunity to talk about our European Citizen Initiative. Now, as Sylvia was mentioning there, this is not a ban on the fuel, but a ban on its advertising. So that's why we're off now to Copenhagen to meet Thomas Colster, a marketing creative who wrote the book Good Advertising and now advises brands on how to communicate and advertise while staying purposeful. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Citizen Central. First, can you tell us how you became a good advertiser? I was 30 at the time and I was working in the creative industry. And since we were actually in Copenhagen hosting the COP15, the climate summit, I had very high expectations of our politicians coming together. We had Tony Blair, we had Barack in town. I thought, wait a moment, our politicians are going to be doing something about it. And obviously, we all know. They didn't. They failed us yet again. Uh, so that provoked me to ask the question, what can I do in my capacity? So I wrote a book, quickly connected with a lot of people inside the advertising industry, but but more and more broadly, in fact, who just felt the same frustrations that I did as a, as a younger Thomas. What exactly does good advertiser mean? Premise is really basic. What I'm passionate about is basically just being a catalyst for other people's positive change. So that's that's sort of my own personal mission. Oh, very interesting, Thomas. Do you see a big change 11 cops later? <laughs> Not from the side of the politicians, no. I do see a shift happening, especially from corporates, uh, more and more corporates standing up to these challenges, uh, some of them more uh, wholeheartedly and genuine than others. But there is a real fundamental shift that's happening. Change is just goddamn difficult, whether you are an individual individual, whether you are a politician or whether you're an institution or a big brand. What I've always been passionate about is really figuring out what triggers change and how can we enable change the best possible way. But Thomas, what we don't see much in fossil fuel ads is fuel. Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of like an illusionist trick or one of those guys with a, you know, with a hand doll on, you know, look, look at this, look at this little thing here, it's dancing, it's cheerful and stuff like that. But it's a puppet show. And Thomas, do you think the European advertising landscape would look different if fossil fuels were chopped out? It's, it's not like we, we're suddenly going to lack billions and billions of dollars going into something. Maybe the system just find a, a more healthy way of operating to be honest. Uh, and I don't think it's been operating in a very healthy way anyway. Maybe it's actually good. And Thomas, did you ever hear about the ECI before we called you? Uh, nope. And now that you know it, what do you think of it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a globalist by heart. I'm a, I'm a European before I'm a Dane. So I'm obviously pro whatever ways you can make people understand that just because there's a Danish flag on a piece of land, you know, you shouldn't fundamentally forget the history that brings all of us together. And I think the capacity to empathize with others are incredibly important. Then will you be signing up? The what the hell? Let's go. Let's let's go with it. You know, you know what I mean? If you cut off a source, it might spur more innovation. So maybe it's good. Maybe it's good to be a little bit more dramatic in these <laughs> <laughs> in in this day and age. So uh, yes, I definitely would sign. Okay, Thomas, great to speak to you. I'd love to chat more and have a coffee, but I'm afraid that's all we've time for. No, thanks so much. Thanks for the coffee. <laughs> Fossil fuel has so many extensions into our society and the fine arts and museum is no exception. So we're off now to Liverpool to meet Clara Payard, a French woman who's an advisor to Culture Unstained 
a research and campaigning organisation that wants to end fossil fuel sponsorship of culture. I'm a French citizen and I moved to the United Kingdom when I was 21 and uh, I worked in museums and galleries. I was involved in my trade unions because very quickly I realised that the museum and cultural sector is quite a precarious place to be for artists and workers. I have also linked up with museum workers uh, across the EU. People who are interested to campaign for a better condition of work or whether it's uh, people who are interested in campaigning around issue of climate change and the arts and culture. In the last 10 years, it's come to my attention that many pollutive industries were sponsoring exhibitions, museums, cultural festivals. What they got in return, reputation, their image as good messes, was very beneficial to them. Cleaning you know, the bad reputation that they've developed in the last uh, decades because their impact on climate change. Nowadays, it will be persona non grata in a museum to have a tobacco company because, you know, the visitors will be completely shocked that a tobacco company could, could sponsor arts and culture. It's not yet the case for all sponsorship. But what is really worrying, really in terms of an education and citizenship point of view, is do those oil companies try to influence the content of some of those exhibitions. It may be not that important if they're sponsoring the display of an ancient you know, master painting, but when they're sponsoring an exhibition about climate change, you start to wonder, you know, what is the real impact? Oil companies using the sponsorship to also influence the public discourse that our museums and galleries are putting out there for the education of the public. This is a battle about the truth and the narrative around climate emergency. Those oil companies for the last 40 years were perfectly aware of the impact they were having on our planet. And it took years to reveal that dimension to the wider public. So as citizens and for artists, we've got an historical duty to research, speak out, expose those truths and rectify those narratives. So we have got an approach that is led by science, but also by citizens. Now, as you can see on the climate front, science-based clarity is crucial for the public's understanding on how to take on the challenges of our time. And that, in a totally different way, is exactly what our next guest is campaigning for. Antoine Gill, thank you so much for being with us here on Citizen Central. Tell us all about yourself and your ECI, the European EcoScore. Well, so I am Antoine Till. I'm 22 years old. I'm studying law and political science in Brussels, but I come from Tournai, a little city in the middle of the fields. Um, I'm really concerned about environmental issues. Having taken part of the climate strikes, I definitely wanted to take meaningful actions and to engage myself a bit more on this level. And so that's why uh, after a, a very nice course in law about European politics, I discovered the European Citizen Initiatives tool. And so with a couple of our friends, we, we've got the idea to launch an initiative on trying to find some solutions to the climate change we, we encounter. And we thought, how could we have a big impact in everyday life? Consumption is one of our highest 
impact on the environment. So we, uh, we thought if we find an initiative that could reach a lot of people because it concerns everyone, it should be in the, in the matter of the consumption. So that's why we, we came up with the idea of an European EcoScore. We all wanted to take concrete action and we wanted also maybe to feel part of something bigger than only our own community. That's why the European level is so interesting. You know, you feel directly part of a continent, of something that is that embraces you. That's something unbelievable. And Antoine, how has your campaign kicked off and what is the plan? Well, we're really aware that's very difficult to reach one million signature. We encounter a lot of different people, experts, and a lot of them told us, well, you know, you are young people, you don't have any financial means, uh, you don't have expertise, so it will be very difficult to reach this million. But we believe we will reach. Huh? Reaching one million uh, needs also a very big campaign, and in the, in the different initiatives that succeeded, we have seen that there are big uh, uh, NGOs or big uh, network with uh, a lot of uh, of means, human resources. Uh, until now, we do not have all the, all those means. But we have one thing that's motivation. We want to create this kind of movement. A lot of people react very, very positively toward our initiative. So we definitely think that with this kind of motivation, because we believe in our project, we will at least prompt a public debate on that issue. Through the EU's Farm to Fork and the Fit for 55 package, there are several labelling projects. So what would make yours different? Well, I've read all the, the documents from the Commission. It says the Commission will try to make kind of uniform label on the environment, environmental impact of products, but a label which is not compulsory. That, that's already a good, a good thing. Huh? from the Commission, there is a willingness to act, and that's very positive. But on the other hand, if a label is not compulsory, a lot of enterprise and a lot of people won't put a negative information on their products. That's a problem. We, we would like a compulsory label on all products, firstly on food and clothes products at the European level. Um, to empower consumers to know exactly what the environmental impact of all products that they buy in all the continent. And do you think this label will really trigger a change in consumer behaviour? I definitely think consumers want more and more transparency on what they buy. If we give the information, then you can raise awareness. And actually, it's one of our rights as a consumer to know what we are buying. And how would this label be calculated? Of course, it's, it's very complex. And first, we started trying to make a, a calculation process. But after a while, we met a lot of experts from different countries. Very, very interesting meetings. A lot of them told us, well, guys, that's very positive what you are doing, but it's very difficult to calculate it. You should maybe let the experts do this kind of difficult job to calculate. And in the Commission, they have so many human resources also to calculate all those eco-scores. And so we, we propose two kind of approaches. First, 
there is this approach developed by the Commission, European Commission, since more than 10 years. It's called uh, the Product Environmental Footprint, and it's based on the life cycle assessments, the production of, of a product, and then consumption, the recycling, and so on. And on the other side, you have those methods which are already used by kind of private EcoScore. And those methods are maybe more pragmatic, easier to implement, but a bit less scientific. So it's possible to, to have an EcoScore, but of course it's complex. And so we believe it's maybe not our job to propose a very specific calculation method. It's a job of, of the commission. Well, Antoine, seems like a massive challenge you've got in front of you there. But thank you so much for being with us here on Citizen Central and best of luck getting those one million signatures. Thank you. Well, as Antoine was telling us there, both companies and other movements have already taken on this sustainability impact labelling challenge. And for more on that, we can head over now to Santander in Spain to meet one of the people pioneering this challenge. Kleena Hoey from Foundation Earth. Thanks for joining us on Citizen Central. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for reaching out. First, just tell us about yourself. My name is Cleona Howie. I'm the current CEO of Foundation Earth. I come from the environmental sector, a long, a long career in the environmental sector, working with governments, working with public authorities, but also working with industry to drive new business models um, and to shift policy and the way we finance and the way we build incentivization for innovation on, on circle economy innovation. All this brought me to Foundation Earth to transform the value chain of the agro-food sector to bring a more sustainable food industry to consumers. Now, I know you've been working on a sustainability and impact labelling scheme. Can you just tell us more about it? So looking into what food labelling exists, consumers are absolutely confused. They see labels all over the place. There's no credibility. So the concept of Foundation Earth was created, saying, what if a new agent came to town. It's not the government-led, it's not industry-led, it's an independent NGO. And companies are aware that to be resilient, to be alive in three years, and to still be producing good quality products that consumers want to buy, they have to they have to rethink their game. Because sustainability also means good business. There are several labeling projects. So what would make yours different? Obviously, putting food label on says, okay, consumers now have access to knowledge on what is the environmental impact on what they're buying. That's a huge change, but there's a lot more that needs to be done around that. So our impact scores, of course, are labels on front of pack. There's digital access to more information if the consumer wishes to dig in and say, okay, this tomato I'm buying, why is it Why is it score to be? I would like to know. And you can go into a QR code and you can find out. But that's a very passive aggressive thing. You don't know if people are going to do that. You don't even know if they're going to take it into consideration. So the whole science around consumer behavior and reading labels and understanding labels is a big part of what we do. What's behind that label is equally as important as the consumer reaction. Labeling stuff, generating the data, science-based data and the knowledge is equally important. That means that companies then have specific, precise, accurate data and intelligence on where the impacts are in their supply chain, and they can do something about it. You can now model that and say, okay, we've got a significant production impact or transport impact or packaging impact. If we do this differently, 
what will happen? So people now are coming saying, how do I do this? I want to do this. How do I do it? And how did you come up with the mythology? One of the things at Foundation Earth that we're very, we're very committed to is using life cycle assessment based methodologies, digging as far as we can on that supply chain to use primary data. We want to drive systems change. We want the consumer to say, I have absolute confidence and trust that this environmental impact of this tomato is a B compared to that one that's a C. Now they're making a choice. Right. You also want to incentivize companies to say you want to make your tomato a B instead of a C. This is where you can do it. This is where you can change something and do things differently. But that's what needs to happen if you truly want to decarbonize supply chain. It's also what really needs to happen if you want to give a credible score to consumers. And it's certainly what what needs to happen if we want to to really drive impact. And that's what the, that's what the mission of Foundation Earth is. I can't wait to see it and use it. Thank you so much for being with us here on Citizen Central. Take care. Have a good day. I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating when an ECI proposes a specific topic. And then when you think about this topic, you actually realise that society is already taking on that very challenge. So to finish off this chapter, we can head now to Sweden to meet Adam Webb, the founder of Lifelong, a company that by making very little changes to products that we consume every day is making consuming these products way more ecological. So my name's Adam. I am the founder of a company called Lifelong in Stockholm, Sweden. We offer plastic-free personal care products and it comes in this innovative powder to liquid formulation so you just mix it with water at home our products lower transport emissions by 94 percent and it comes in a compostable pouch so it completely takes away the need for plastic packaging when i created lifelong the aha moment was against plastic i was using a deodorant how many of these deodorants do i have to use for the rest of my life I decided to create a refillable roll-on deodorant designed to last a lifetime. I've always had some type of entrepreneurial spirit. I promised myself the next company I I work on or I build has to be purpose-driven. A lot of it came down to because I have two kids. It's about making the future generations more safe, basically. And the fact that we can ship this hand soap through your letterbox and 40 grams make 500 grams of a liquid product. It's been around and there's products in the past, but my kids love to mix the product. Yeah, this kind of do-it-yourself mentality of rather than just going into a supermarket, you know, kind of going back and making stuff yourself. The mums and the dads, they get their kids involved and get get them mixing it. Our products are 99.6% natural ingredients. They're good for the family, they're good for kids, and they're good for the planet as well. This eco-score would be fantastic if we could get it implemented throughout Europe. You know, just reading into it, I signed up to it. But what a great initiative that is. How you can force companies to really show exactly how they produce their products, where it's produced and how you actually manage that, I think is a huge task. Well, that brings this edition of Citizen Central to an end. A massive thank you to our guests and, of course, to you for listening. And if you fancy finding out a little bit more about any of these ECIs, do check out our show notes. You can also take a look at the ECI website or follow the ECI's individual social channels. And, of course, if you want to propose your very own ECI, you can head over to the ECI forum to learn about that and how to get started. I'm Maeve McMahon. 
and you've been listening to Citizen Central. <laughs>